Well, our text for today is 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. I encourage you to get a copy of God's Word. Open up to this passage. This paragraph, 14, 15, and 16, is largely recognized by commentators as being the very heart of the pastoral letters, the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus. As you may know, Timothy was a young colleague of the Apostle Paul. Paul took him as a travel companion on his second missionary journey. And in verse 2 of chapter 1, he calls him a child of the faith, child in the faith. He served with Paul as a very talented, gifted evangelist. When Paul traveled through Macedonia, he left Timothy there in Ephesus in order to give strong leadership to the elders of that church that Paul himself had planted. And the church needed that strong leadership because it had been infiltrated by false teaching even among those very elders. If you go to Acts chapter 20, you can read Paul's last engagement with those elders, his farewell to them. And on that, in that scene, one of the most poignant scenes we have in the New Testament, he looks them in the eye, men that he probably himself set aside as elders of the church at Ephesus. He says, from your own number there will arise those who teach false things, leading people astray. And so knowing that, and probably that already happening now, Timothy is left in Ephesus to put things right. In the text before us today, Paul instructs Timothy as to why he writes this letter. Specifically, he tells him that he has written this letter in order to give instructions to Timothy that will help him to understand more accurately how people of God are to live in the church of God. And obviously, Paul intends Timothy's deepened understanding to empower him and motivate him to lead the members of the church in Ephesus to live out their faith as God intends them to do, even in the midst of severe challenges. So hear the word of God from 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'll begin reading in verse 14. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And although we will not get to verse 16 today in this exposition, I do want to read it because it is a wonderful reminder of both the content and the object of our faith, that which enables us to do what verses 14 and 15 admonish us to do. There Paul writes, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Well, in verses 14 and 15, what I want to point out to us today is that God calls his people to live in his church by his rules. His people, his church, his rules. And there's really only two points that I want to call to our attention from these verses. First, God sets the rules for his church. He's the one who makes the rules. And secondly, the very nature of the church obligates us to live according to those rules. So let's consider, first of all, what the text says about God setting the rules for his church. 
verses 14 and the first part of verse 15, we read, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. Paul wanted to be there, intended to be there, but if he was delayed being there, he did not want Timothy and the church to be without clear instruction on how God's people should live in God's church. There is a standard of conduct that God sets for his people. Christians are morally obligated to behave in certain ways. The language that Paul employs here underscores that. He uses that little word ought that is found nine times in the pastoral letters. And it's a word that is not a mere suggestion. It is a word that carries with it a deep obligation. We see this in chapter 3 when the word is used repeatedly concerning the qualifications that a man must have, he ought to have, he must have, if he is going to serve as an elder or a deacon. This obligation extends to every member of God's household. Paul's not here exclusively concerned with how Timothy ought to conduct himself, though that is certainly true. He wants Timothy to understand how all God's people must conduct themselves in the church of the living God. And so he writes, so that you, Timothy, may know how one ought to behave. Now he's not talking about any singular person. He's talking about every member of the church. Even in instructing Timothy, he specifically tells Timothy that he must be a model, an example for all believers. In chapter 4, verse 12, he says, do this in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Everyone has an obligation, Timothy. You do too. You model it for everybody so they'll not only hear the responsibility, they'll see it fleshed out in your life. And the obligation has to do with behavior, with conduct, with the way that we operate. That word behave means to live in accordance with certain principle. It encompasses not just the outward activities that we engage in, but it encompasses our attitudes, our actions, as well as our whole lifestyle. God has specific ways that he requires, he obligates his people to live as part of his church. And so Paul says, this is why I have written these things to you. These things. Which things? Well, the whole letter. But more particularly, the things that he has just written. What he's written in the previous verses. For example, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, to reject false teachers. It's not an option for God's people in God's church. When false teaching arises and false teachers propose those false teachings, God's people are under obligation to reject them. Verses 8 through 11 of chapter 1, to rightly honor and use God's law in the face of those who would misuse and misunderstand God's law. God's people have an obligation to understand it rightly and to employ it properly. In verses 12 through 20 of chapter 1, to hold fast to the salvation in Jesus Christ alone. This is a stewardship that's been given to us in the gospel, and we can't treat it lightly. It is a prized possession. It is a treasure, and we must never let go of it. 
In chapter 2, he gives instructions on how to pray, how to worship. In the first 13 verses of chapter 3, he gives instructions on how to recognize, to see qualified men as elders and deacons in the church. In chapter 4, he gives instructions about how Christians in God's church are to relate to material possessions and how they are to pursue godliness and sound doctrine. Chapter 5, instructions are given on how to treat older people, how to treat younger people, especially how to treat widows in the church, and how to regard elders in the church. Chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, Instructions on how employees are to relate to their employers. And then finally, in verses 6 through 19 of chapter 6, there are warnings against loving money and desiring to be rich. And then special instructions to those who are rich is given. So, brothers and sisters, do you see that for those of us who call Jesus Lord, that we are living a life under obligation to God? God tells us that as his people in his church, here's how we ought to live. Here's how we must live. The way that we conduct ourselves in our relationships and our churches matters to God. He cares. It's not insignificant. He's certainly not indifferent to attitudes, actions, lifestyles that we engage in as his people. To be devoted to Jesus as Lord means that you will necessarily be devoted to live with other believers under the Lordship of Christ in mutual commitments in a local church. That's simply God's way. To neglect such commitments or to treat them lightly or with indifference indicates at best a superficial understanding of what it means to have Jesus Christ as Lord. At worst, it could mean that you only call him Lord without really submitting to him as Lord in a genuine, loving faith. We need to own the warnings of Scripture. The Jesus whom we love, whom those who profess to know him say they love while dismissing the church, that Jesus said that Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter in the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. That Jesus said, on that day, there will be many who say to me, but Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did mighty works in your name. And that Jesus says, I will say to them, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. You see, to know Jesus Christ as Lord is to submit to the Lordship of Christ in practical areas of life, including how we live together in the church of Jesus Christ. Every family has household rules. One of the rules that Donna and I had when our kids were growing up is that you would eat what is set in front of you when it was set in front of you, or you wouldn't eat. Uh, we decided a long time ago Donna wasn't going to be a short order cook. Uh, she wasn't going to c- cater to everybody's appetites. You didn't have to like what you ate, but you did have to eat what was set in front of you if you wanted to eat. 
And we made no apologies for this. We wanted our children to learn to be grateful for nutritious food that was available for them. And again, I never apologized for it because it's my house, my rules, right? I mean, that's just the way it goes. Well, that's true for God. Just as you and I set the rules for our household, God does the same for his. And notice that God's rules for his household are found in the Scripture. Paul says, I am writing these things to you so that. The standard of conduct for the people of God in the church of God is not left to popular opinion or to tradition or to personal preference. The standard is set by apostolic writing. It's set by Scripture. Scripture alone determines how a church is to live and how individual church members are to conduct themselves in the household of God. Brothers and sisters, we get our marching orders as the church of Christ from the written word of God. This fundamental principle of authority has been largely forgotten by some evangelical leaders over the last two years. How many times did, did we hear counsel that churches should simply obey the civil authorities when they told us not to gather for worship or tried to tell us how we could only gather for worship? And what was the one passage that was consistently marshaled out to silence any dissenting voices? Romans 13. Romans 13. Paul's words in those first seven verses of that chapter were weaponized to silence those who voiced hesitation and to shame those who simply refused to heed that counsel. I can't tell you how many times in conversation with people I disagreed with over this when they would say, but what about Romans 13? I just simply said, did you read verse 4 twice? It says that the magistrate is God's servant God's deacon? Don't you think God's deacons are obligated to do what God says? Don't you think they should recognize that they are under authority and not the source of authority? While there's much wrong with the thinking that says Christians must simply comply with civil magistrates no matter what unless they specifically instruct us to sin, Here's the main problem that I want to highlight from our text. The same God who gave us Romans 13 also gave us 1 Timothy 3, 14, and 15. And he alone instructs the true Christian churches that belong to him with the authority that comes from him regarding how we are to conduct ourselves in his household. We submit to civil authorities because God tells us to submit to civil authorities. We honor those in positions of responsibility and authority over us because God tells us to honor them. Both churches and states must operate under the authority of God. He is the one who has ordained the church and he is the one who has ordained the state. And Christ is Lord of both church and state. And church and state must operate in the specific spheres with the limited authority that God has assigned to each of them. 
When civil authorities fail to do what God has charged them to do or begin to overreach the sphere or abuse of the authority that God has assigned to them, God's people are obligated to obey God. Amen. At times, such obedience to God may require disobedience to the state. Francis Schaeffer said it well in his book, A Christian Manifesto, when he wrote, Since tyranny is satanic, not to resist it is to resist God. To resist tyranny is to honor God. Brothers and sisters, we have a book. That book tells us how the church of God is to live in God's world. The church belongs to him. He gets to set the rules. Well, he sets the rules for how his people are to behave. But notice how Paul goes on to motivate us to take our responsibility seriously at this point. He does it by reminding us of just what the church is. The nature of the church obligates us to behave according to his rules. So in the latter part of verse 15, we read, we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, there are three descriptions of churches in this latter part of verse 15. He calls a church the household of God. And then he further identifies the church with two descriptions of its importance. So let's look at them. First, the church is the household of God. That word household can mean both house as in a structure or as our English Bibles translate it, household, or as a family, those who inhabit the structure. And Paul seems to have both ideas in mind here. Certainly both ideas figure into our understanding of the New Testament teaching about the nature of a church. We are God's family. In verses 4 and 12, of this chapter the word is used in reference to church offices officers when it says they must manage their households well it's, it, it's not talking about the structure of where they live it's talking about their families and then in chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 Paul applies this family idea again he says do not rebuke an older man but encourage him as you would a father younger men as brothers older women as mothers younger women as sisters in all purity he's talking about how to conduct yourself in the household of God, like a family. There's a sense in which a church is like a structure, God's house, his dwelling place. Again, not referring literally to a physical structure, though in the Old Testament, both the tabernacle and later the temple were physical structures where God chose to manifest his presence. In the New Testament, the physical structure is used only metaphorically, to describe the church as God's dwelling place. So, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, Paul writes, You are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He's speaking analogically. He's using a metaphor to help us to conceive the nature of the church or 2nd Corinthians chapter 6 verse 16 he tells the church at Corinth we are the temple of the living God that is the people the members of the church collectively we are the place where God dwells 
The church is God's idea. We are his family. We are his house. And as such, he is the one who gives rules for the house. And everyone who is adopted into his family is called to live according to what he says. Now, Paul immediately adds a second description that's designed to heighten the seriousness of these instructions he's giving. Not only is the church God's household, it's also the church of the living God. Church. It's that word, ecclesia, that we're very familiar with in its transliteration into English. It simply means an assembly of people who've been called out of the world and to Jesus Christ through faith. This is the word from which we get ecclesiastical or ecclesiology from. And the New Testament describes the church in various ways. As I've already mentioned, we have it compared to the temple of God. In Ephesians 2, we are called the bride of Christ in Revelation 21, verse 9. The bride of the wife of the Lamb. The body of Christ in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 12. In all of these and the other analogies that are used in the Bible to describe aspects of the church, there's one overarching theme that penetrates every one. The church belongs to God. It's his. He conceived it. He called it into existence. He provides for its foundation and its building. Well, as you may know, the word church in the New Testament is used in two different ways that have some overlap and similarities. On some occasions, it's used in the New Testament to refer to all the company of God's chosen people, what's called the universal church. But most of the time, when you see the word church in the New Testament, it's referring to a body of believers in a specific location, like in Ephesus or Galatia or Philippi. It's what we call a local church. I'm convinced of what Paul is referring to here in these words to Timothy has reference to local churches. He's referring to the church at Ephesus where Timothy is living and leading. He's not referring to the church universal. Why do I believe this is what Paul means? Well, there are several reasons. Let me give you two primary reasons. The first is the context. If you go back up a few verses to verses 4 and 5, you see the qualifications for overseers and elders is worded like this. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Speaking very particularly of a man's household, comparing it to God's church, which would suggest a particular church. Now, obviously, elders are set apart to serve specific local churches, not the universal church. In verse 12 of chapter 3, the same idea is there about deacons. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. But I think it's also evident from the actual meaning of the text. As we see, Paul is concerned that church members learn how to conduct themselves in God's family as they live together in the household of God. And this is simply impossible to do in terms of the universal church, which transcends time 
and location. So Paul's talking about a local church. He's talking about the church at Ephesus as well as every true church of Jesus Christ wherever and whenever it may be found. And notice the way Paul describes this church. It belongs to the living God. The living God. Churches of Jesus Christ do not worship a dead deity. He's neither uninterested nor impotent when it comes to show people how to behave in his house. It matters to him. He cares the way that we conduct ourselves. The thought of this church belonging to the living God should sober us. The author of Hebrews wrote, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So as we covenant together with other believers and we seek to fulfill the mission that God's given to us in our place, our time in a church, we must do so always remembering that we belong to God, the living God, who has written for us instructions on how we ought to conduct ourselves. So why should we care about how we behave in the church? Well, first, because it is God's household. Second, because it is the church of the living God. And then Paul adds, thirdly, it is the pillar and buttress of the truth. New Testament scholar Bill Mounts calls this statement the most significant phrase in all the pastoral epistles. It shows more clearly and more dramatically than anything else what is at stake in the Ephesian heresy and why it is essential that the church, especially the church leaders, conduct themselves properly. Every New Testament church is called to proclaim the truth of God. It is a pillar. A pillar supports a structure. It holds something forth and makes it visible. But every New Testament church is also called to protect the church of God. It is a buttress, a rampart. It helps to provide protection. As in ancient times, walls were built around a city in order to protect the city. And what is it that every church is to proclaim and protect? The truth, the revealed truth particularly the truth that is revealed in Jesus Christ, as verse 16 goes on to make clear. Now, be careful to note that Paul is not saying that the truth owes its existence to a church, nor is he saying that any particular church is the sole pillar or buttress of the truth. The living God will protect and preserve his truth in the world. He has and he will continue to the very end. What Paul is doing here is emphasizing the task that every true local church has been given by God, and that is we are stewards of the message of Jesus Christ. As people who have been rescued by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been entrusted with the good news that all that Christ has done is all that sinners need in order to be reconciled to God. That's the message that's been given to us. We should not expect any other sphere to proclaim that message. It is the church's task to go and make disciples throughout all the nations. 
we are proclaimers, tellers, messengers of the good news, which means that we are to widely, passionately, promiscuously declare to anyone and everyone, Jesus Christ is Lord. He has come into the world to seek and to save that which is lost. He laid down his life for sinners like you. And you must turn from your sin and trust him to be reconciled to your creator before whom one day you will stand to give an account. When church members do not live the way that God calls us to live in his world, in his world the consequences extend far beyond our own actions. Such disobedience undermines the church's call to proclaim and protect the one true way of salvation. This is serious business. You might think that what you do in relationship to your church is just between you and God or you and your immediate family members. But brothers and sisters, there is a stewardship that belongs to each one of us individually and every local church collectively to steward the gospel of Jesus Christ in what we say and not to undermine, undermine it by how we live. The mission that God has given to the church is to proclaim and protect the truth revealed in Christ. That mission will necessarily involve us in conflict with any and all forces that seek to stifle or undermine the truth. This inevitable conflict has led theologians, as they've reflected upon it, to refer to the church throughout history as the church militant. Now, some modern religionists are offended at that language. You should see some of the emails I've received. They don't want that kind of militant language to be used of the church. But let's be clear. People who are offended at that kind of language are offended not at people. They're offended at the word of God and the God whose word it is. He's the one who has inspired writers to talk about our mission in terms of warfare in both the Old and New Testaments. Throughout all the scripture, we hear passage after passage calling us to stand firm, to fight, to take up arms, to equip ourselves, to put on the full armor that is the Lord Jesus Christ, to faithfully carry out the mission that God's given to every local church requires that we be willing to engage in holy warfare. Now, of course, this does not mean, as Louis Burkhoff warns us, that the church must spend her strength in self-destroying internecine struggles, but that she is duty-bound to carry on an incessant warfare against the hostile world in every form in which it reveals itself, whether in the church or outside of it, and against all the spiritual forces of darkness." While every individual Christian must indeed engage in spiritual warfare against the world, the flesh, and the devil, every church needs to recognize that its mission to proclaim the truth and defend the truth 
to evangelize and make disciples, to stand against and protect the truth from sinister forces of darkness that are always trying to stifle it, that that too requires militant mindsets. We must see ourselves in a war. Again, as Burkhoff helpfully explains as he elaborates this point, he writes, the church may not spend all her time in prayer and meditation, however necessary and important these may be, nor may she rest on her oars in the peaceful enjoyment of her spiritual heritage. She must be engaged with all her might in the battles of her Lord, fighting in a war that is both offensive and defensive. It's precisely this point that many churches today in the West need to be awakened and reoriented to the nature of our mission. We need to be reoriented and reawakened to the cost of carrying this mission out. When God's truth is under attack, Christian churches must defend it. Such is the call to churches in Canada since the recent implementation of the notorious Bill C-4 that criminalizes so-called conversion therapy. That law makes it illegal and punishable by fine and imprisonment to attempt to convert someone from gender dysphoria or sexual perversions to views and or practices that conform to what the Bible teaches is right and good. Listen to the preamble of this bill that just a couple of weeks ago became law in Canada. It says... Conversion therapy causes harm to society because, among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred above other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. What God created humanity to be, male and female, is a myth. It is a stereotype. It is harmful to society. The bill goes on. And in light of those harms... It is important to discourage and denounce the provision of conversion therapy in order to protect the human dignity and equality of all Canadians. Brothers and sisters, this is an attack upon God's truth and upon reality itself. There's no other way to evaluate the language of this law. So I was heartened when... I was made aware of Liberty, Canada, Liberty Coalition Canada's call for churches to take last Sunday as an opportunity to preach and teach on biblical sexuality in an effort in Canada to defend the truth of God. And with John MacArthur's encouragement, over 5,000 churches across North America and indeed many other places around the world, they joined together to publicly declare God's word about sexuality against this lie that's embedded now, codified in the law of Canada. Brothers and sisters, I think that's one example of churches carrying out their mission with appropriate militancy. 
Other examples are what happened in Grace Life Church in Edmonton last year when they defied the Alberta Public Health Act by refusing to keep their church closed or requiring them to only allow a small proportion of their church to gather. As a result of that defiance, of that tyrannical action, Pastor James Coates spent a month in prison by the Alberta authorities. And even during the time that he was in prison, Grace Life continued to meet. They continued to worship. They continued to evangelize. They continued to disciple. They were the church militant. They took their orders from God to do what he requires of his people in his house. Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, under the leadership of John MacArthur, did the same thing last year when they defied state requirements and began to meet again with their full congregation. This resulted in increasing weekly fines and threats of imprisonment and was ultimately only resolved by a successful lawsuit against the state of California. Now, these are examples of the church militant that extend beyond our normal, everyday acts of militancy that goes with making disciples. As Christians, we don't unnecessarily want to engage in controversy. Christians, churches want to serve people, not fight them. But we must recover an awareness that the cost of our mission to proclaim and defend the truth will sometimes conflict with those who oppose the truth of God. The problem with wicked ideologies is that they don't stay disembodied. People embody them and advocate them. And when they do, though we wrestle not with flesh and blood and we don't look upon them and mark them out as enemies to be destroyed, we realize they've been taken captive by the enemy and that they need to be refuted and rejected and resisted. We must settle this in our minds once and for all. When God's truth is under assault, God's church has only two choices. It can stand firm, unapologetically proclaiming and defending that truth. That is, it can be the church militant. Or it can abdicate its mission and deny its God. There aren't any other alternatives. Brothers and sisters, God calls his people to live in his church according to his rules. What that means for us is that we must steel ourselves in this day for the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. One day, our warfare will be over, and the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And what a glorious day that will be. On that day, the church militant will become the church triumphant in heaven. And as Burkhoff says, there the sword is exchanged for the palm of victory. The battle cries are turned into songs of triumph, and the cross is replaced by the crown. The strife is over. The battle is won. The saints reign with Christ forever and ever. That will be a glorious day. But that day's not yet. It's in front of us still. Until then, our marching orders have not changed. We bow to King Jesus. We acknowledge his lordship over the church. We remember that the church is the household of God. It is his rules that we obey. 
So we keep preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We keep evangelizing and discipling in his name for his glory. And we will continue to contend for the faith by defending God's truth from all would-be usurpers of the authority that belongs to him alone. We do this because we are the church militant. One day, we will be the church triumphant. But until that day dawns, we fight. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, we want to be faithful in the household of God. We want to take our marching orders seriously. and We don't want to be found wanting on that day when we stand to give an account for the stewardship entrusted to us as the people of God in the household of God. So come and by your spirit, teach us and strengthen us and grant us joy and determination to proclaim your word, your truth, to defend your truth, to do so with a view and an eye to your glory alone. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.